There we go. Try that. That means my mic was on during singing, so good thing Don cut me off. <laughs> good for all of you. All right, so after a couple weeks in other themes, we looked at Ascension and Pentecost the last two Sundays. We are back in our Matthew series now at this point, so uh, we're up to Matthew chapter 10. So if you want to turn there, this morning we're going to look at verses 34 through 42, so turn in your Bibles there. And once you've found your spot, then I'll ask you to stand as we read God's Word. And these are the perfect and all-sufficient words of a perfect God. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous man because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly, I say to you, by no means will he lose his reward. And you can be seated. So because we've been out of this series for two Sundays, I guess, I'll try to catch us up from a 30,000-foot view of where we've been, and maybe it'll all come back to you. So in this chapter, in verses 1 through 4, Jesus is called the 12 apostles. And then in verses 5 through 15, he's told them to perform the signs of an apostle as they go through Israel preaching the gospel, and he gives them a hospitality test to see who is going to receive him and who will not, which towns will and which won't, and which households will and which won't. And then in verses 16 through 25, the 12 are told again to go specifically through Israel first, and then they are warned of coming persecution. And then lastly, in verses 26 to 33, also in this context of persecution and of rejection and of their message being rejected, Christ reminds the apostles that God's providence means that even insignificant details like birds falling out of the sky are personally governed by God. And he reminds them once again not to fear man, but to fear God. And that brings us to today's text. And so let's remember that today's passage is the concluding sentences of one long, ongoing sermon that Jesus started preaching in verse 16. And the context is still the same. The rejection and persecution that is going to come as a result of the twelve going out to preach the gospel. And by extension, of course, these instructions still pertain to us today as we carry on the same work of making Christ known throughout our area through the proclamation of the gospel. And Jesus starts here in a way that maybe should jar us. Maybe it does, and I think it should. He just gets right to it here. Notice what he says. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. Should Jesus have taken one of those Dale Carnegie public speaking courses, how to win friends and influence people? Because this is not what you'd learn there. This is not how you do it. Jesus is not being winsome. Jesus is getting right to the end game here. He just lays it out in the most obvious terms. He is explaining to the 12 what's behind the persecution that they're about to face. 
What's at stake here? Why this is so serious for everybody? And many people today, and and possibly then as well, tend to think that if we follow Jesus, everyone's going to love us, our life's going to go great, it's going to be smooth, everyone's going to accept what we say, but that's just simply not the case. Jesus was never a jerk, and neither should we be. But, as we have seen recently on Ascension Day, Christ being crowned King of the universe is not without controversy or pushback or opposition. The absolute lordship and kingship of Christ over his creation means that a whole lot of other people are getting dethroned. And they're not going to go easily. They're going to put up a fight on this claim of absolute lordship that Christ makes. The lordship of Christ means that there is no neutrality. And we've pushed this often because this is in the text. This is in the claims of Jesus. But this is oh so relevant in our day and our time today. We've been told this myth of neutrality. Well, we'll just make it equal for everyone. That cannot happen. That will not happen. And if it could, it would be sinful. Neutrality would be a sin if it were in fact possible, which it clearly is not. You are either going to acknowledge Christ as ultimate and you are going to give him all praise and all glory or you're going to acknowledge something else as ultimate and give all your allegiance to it. What is completely off the table is being in between. Not making up your mind. To not make up your mind is to make up your mind. Neutrality is not an option despite it being the very top prized virtue of our society. And this myth is such a bold-faced lie that it's amazing that people can look you in the eyes while pretending that it's true. Neutrality claims that it will make things equal for all, that there won't be any overriding principles in play. And one way you can uh, picture this, certainly the way I was taught uh, in my own education, and if you're younger than me, for sure you've been taught this, and if you're possibly older as well, is that, you know, essentially, uh, neutrality, we're just going to be even in the schools and in the public square, and everything's just going to be equal and, and even, and music and art and, and everything, entertainment, it's all just going to be neutral. So this neutrality is like the shopping mall, and everyone's allowed to set up shop. The Christians can have a shop, the Hindus can have a shop, the New Age people can have a shop, but it's just going to be this neutral place, and everyone's kind of allowed equally, is the claim. But that means that Christianity exists by permission of some kind of neutral authority. Christianity is allowed by human authority to exist. And that is so wrong. That is so wrong. And think of this. If neutrality is this prized virtue that we have, and well, we'll just, you know, we'll just kind of find the middle way somewhere, neutrality itself is a moral virtue. We're saying neutrality is the highest moral value. It's a moral claim. And that means if it comes from some kind of moral system, which it does, then the system that demands that neutrality is now the ultimate religion and Christianity is allowed to come in underneath it. The the claims of Jesus are allowed because of this overriding principle that stands above Jesus. Or if we're going to say that there is no religious system behind secularism, there is no uh, moral value, no moral code behind it, then we're going to say that the demands to be neutral are just arbitrary and useless and you're free to reject them. But in neither case does it work. There can be no neutrality in the world or in your life. Someone is Lord of your life right now. Someone is Lord of your life right now. Somebody is giving you moral commands that are absolute and you are following them. And you're doing that either consciously or self-consciously, but this is how we operate. There's always a Lord. 
We've been playing this game and making these claims for a very short time. I was just discussing with some gentlemen after Sunday school this morning how novel this is, that we've been trying to pretend like we can be religiously neutral. This really only became an official dogma, let's say in Canada, in the 1970s, multiculturalism. But in such a short time, in a very short time, after cutting ourselves from the absolute authority of God's word, we're supposed to pretend like we're taking each other seriously. And it doesn't work. The center is gone. What kind of a world is it that has feminine hygiene products in a men's bathroom? Don't tell me that makes any sense. That's what happens when Christ is removed from the center. We quickly descend into chaos. And when I've said Christ or chaos many times here, those are our only two options. There is no mediating point. There is no partway point. There's no halfway bargain we can make. Either you worship the triune God of Scripture or it is the outer darkness and absolute chaos, which is indeed what we are descending into. Christ's claims of authority are absolute. And when Christ announces his absolute lordship and he threatens that there's going to be conflict as a result of it, and then we, his people, live in a way that is consistent with his lordship, what it does is it does confront people with a decision. And it's a decision that they would rather punt away and not like to make. But we have to do it. If we're going to be faithful stewards, we have to put this on the table and say, this is what it is. Take it or leave it. But we have to be honest and confront people. It is going to be Christ or it's chaos. Steve Lawson, I think, has correctly diagnosed one problem with the church and with preachers in particular. And he says that the problem with preachers today is that nobody wants to kill them anymore. This is a big problem. In the old days, preachers were supposed to get killed. I know one Anglican minister said, why is it When Jesus or when Paul go into a city, there's a riot. And when I go, they serve me tea. Something's up, (laughs) okay? Jesus and Paul have a riot or they have repentance. One or the other, I get served tea. What's going on? Too often, there's no law that's strong enough to kill anyone. And there's no gospel that's strong enough to make anyone alive. So much of our Christian thinking in North America has become some kind of confusing blend, some kind of cocktail of law and gospel that ends up actually being neither one. We've tried being winsome. We've tried watering it down. We've tried talking so softly and so tenderly about sin that when it gets time to talk to your non-Christian friend about salvation, I think it's a legitimate thing to say, salvation from what? From what? I've never been told I was a sinner. There's nothing wrong with me. I'm perfectly happy living this life. Salvation doesn't even make any sense apart from a strong preaching of the law. In the 1920s, H. Richard Niebuhr, a Christian commentator, commenting on the theological drift of his own time. This is in the 1920s. This is the heyday of theological liberalism. He describes it like this. A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministry of a Christ without a cross. And what's especially sad is that what Niebuhr talked about theological liberalism in the 1920s covers a wide swath of evangelicalism in the 2020s. The gospel that many Christians think about today doesn't really force anyone into making a decision. And this is so different than what Jesus has just told us. He came to bring a sword. It's decision time. You're with me or... You're against me. But there is no mediating position. There is no third way. But by using a sword language here, Jesus is showing that his mission is, in fact, to go on the offensive, 
to make some gains. But this shouldn't be understood to be a promotion of force or of violence. When Jesus is speaking about division and a sword, we need to keep in mind what kind of a language he is using. We're not talking about the advance of the gospel at the tip of a literal sword. I think it's more along the lines of the language that we read about in Hebrews 4, 12 and 13, which says that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who must give an account. The Christian sword that Christ speaks of is his word. And now we see why people react to Christ and to his word the way they do. It exposes their heart. It leaves them without excuse to use the language of Romans 1. And that is an uncomfortable spot to be in. When this happens, when we are confronted with an ultimate choice, our fight or flight mechanism kicks in. We either flee to Christ, like the song says, naked come to thee for dress. Or we get defensive and start fighting. We start kicking against him. And so the division that Christ speaks of is the division that is caused by the sword of his word, exposing what's in the human heart. And now you have to decide, are you with him or are you against him? But you cannot punt. We're talking about peace. We're talking about war, about friction, conflict, and a sword. And by now, maybe some of you are asking, but isn't Jesus the Prince of Peace? Well, yes, and I'm glad you asked. In a bigger, wider scope... Seen from further away, if we zoom out further, yes, of course, the ultimate goal is to bring peace on earth. This is what is exclaimed at Christ's birth, right? Peace on earth. Uh, And of the increase of his government, there shall be no end. And, And Jesus is the prince of peace. And so there's all this peace language. How do we put this together? I think the only way that we see that we can achieve lasting peace is to drive the evil away entirely. Peace that's brought about by truce or compromise is volatile. It's shaky. It's temporary. It will not last. And so for Christ to truly restore peace in his creation means that all evil must be conquered once and for all, eternally. He has to eternally put it under his feet, as we were reminded on Ascension Sunday. And we, as Christians, as evangelists, as people who uh, rub shoulders with non-Christian family members and friends, have to remember that God does, in fact, have two ways of destroying his enemies. One is through repentance and faith, turning an enemy into his friend. But for those who will not do that, the way he destroys them is in the outer darkness, in hell. And of course, as Christians, we want the former to always be the case. We always anticipate and we always work hoping that the way Christ will destroy this enemy is by turning him into a friend. And that is all of our evangelistic efforts needs to be with that heart of turning these people into Christ's friends. But not everyone does bend the knee. And the forces of darkness are not quick to bend the knee just because Christ the King has come to claim what is rightfully His. They're going to put up as much of a fight as they can, as they indeed are doing in Christ's time and in ours. So peace is the ultimate goal, yes. Peace is the final state of things, yes. But to achieve that peace, there is going to have to be considerable turmoil for a considerable amount of time. And this matches our experience. And this too should not surprise us. Jesus goes on in verses 35 through 39, says, For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
Verse 35 here is a direct reference to Micah chapter 7, verse 6, uh, which is looking at a time also of considerable division and considerable turmoil and strife that, that was happening during the time of the reign of Ahaz. And so we see, again, always, sin causes chaos. Sin drives people apart from one another. Of special note in the time of Micah that Jesus is referencing here is the widespread rampant practice of divorce and rebellious children. What kind of time are we living in? Is divorce and rebellious children, is that part of our experience? Friends, this is God's judgment. And there's only one way back, and it is through the cross of Jesus Christ. There is no other way back. We must get the gospel out. When the rejection of God and his law becomes commonplace, division and polarization are necessarily the consequence. If there's no center, if there's nothing holding this together, if the center gives out, everyone starts to do what is right in his own eyes, as the prophets in the Old Testament frequently saw. And this necessarily turns the world into a chaotic place. And we're watching this again in our own time. I don't know how many of you have watched uh, this last week. uh, I think the Daily Wire on Twitter made What is a Woman Available for Free? And we watched it, and what a wild thing that is to watch. Truly wild. That you have two and three-year-olds that are clearly in a better place to answer an elementary question than a Harvard PhD. Any three-year-old I trust in this room could answer what a woman is. They all know. They're all made in the image of God, and they're not trying to suppress it. They could tell you what a woman is. But it's amazing. You sit down with academics People have PhDs in medicine and psychiatry and they just go on and on and on and with a 20-minute answer and there is no answer. Okay? Apparently, we even need the grace of God to know the difference between a man and a woman. It should seem like that should be the most elementary thing, but friends, when God pulls his spirit away, when he throws us into the chaos that we deserve for unbelief, we start to lose grasp of even the most fundamental things. Even the most basic elementary things are gone. So there can never be an appeal to, well, everybody knows this, or this we all agree on, or some kind of natural law principle for how things are to be governed. There is no agreement. If God has consigned us to the chaos, we will live in the chaos. And the only way back is Jesus Christ. A Christless kind of conservatism will not do it. Okay? I'm glad for people that only want to destroy us at 80 miles an hour rather than at 120 miles an hour, because it gives us more time to think things through. Okay? But we live in a time where if, if the forces of darkness are trying to destroy things as fast as they can, we, we tend to think, well, some kind of you know, bland, non-Christian conservatism can stop us, can stop it. But all that's doing is saying, no, we're the responsible group. We're just going to destroy us over three years. We have a better, more responsible plan to kill ourselves. Okay? There is, it is Christ or chaos. There is no other way to slow this down ultimately or to stop it. And I would encourage you, watch, watch that documentary with your kids. It is wild what they're facing in the world that has thrown off all of the rule of God's law, of the lordship of Jesus. And our experience often does match these verses, doesn't it? Just like the apostles and the early Christians were disowned by their families and communities, many today are likewise treated poorly because of their faith. We hear many missionary reports in Islamic nations, you get completely cut off from your family, or worse, for converting to Christianity. In some Jewish traditions, the family will hold a a, a symbolic funeral for anyone that converts to Christianity, essentially saying, you're now dead to us. You don't belong here. 
anymore. And I also know a number of people in our own midst that I have talked to here who have paid a very heavy price for following their conscience, for following what they believe is obedience to the Word of God. The cost has been heavy for many of you. And I understand that. And this is, as Jesus said, it would be. These things can be deeply painful. Living with conflict in our own family, whether that's parents, whether that's children, whether that's siblings, to pay the cost of being a Christian is extremely painful. And so we need to ask ourselves, in light of Jesus' words here, how much are we willing to hurt for the sake of the kingdom? How much are you willing to hurt for the sake of the kingdom? Remember that the powers that be will not go away without a fight. So we have to press on. Christ paid the ultimate price. All but one of the apostles paid the ultimate price. Are we willing to do it if we are called to do the same? And this is really nothing new. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher in England in the 1800s, talked about this in his own time. He said, in the act of producing the peace of heaven, Christ arouses the rage of hell. Okay? And we tend to think, oh, 1800s England, that was, would have been a great time to be alive. Who knows that Charles Spurgeon was excommunicated from the Baptist Union by a vote of something in the range of 1,000 to 2? The Prince of Preachers, our hero, everyone loves Spurgeon today, right? Excommunicated, censured by the Baptist General Union. His gospel was a little too hot. And in England, we're responsible Anglicans. We're responsible Baptists. We don't want that hot gospel that Charles Spurgeon is preaching. Okay? This is nothing new. And it doesn't look like it's going away anytime soon. So you have to be ready to pay the price. You have to be ready that there's going to be conflict. There's going to be a fight. And for those of us who want to be faithful Christian soldiers, we don't fight because we love fighting. Christians should not love fighting. A true Christian soldier does not fight because he hates what's in front of him. He fights because he loves what is behind him. And we've already seen that the path to lasting peace comes through difficulty. And this pattern may seem strange at first, but this is in fact the biblical pattern. Suffering and conflict are the path to lasting peace. And this is how we're also able to reconcile the fact that the Bible teaches both the total victory and dominion of Christ over his creation and the ongoing nature of difficulty, persecution, setback, and suffering for his saints. This is what the church father Tertullian meant when he said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Sometimes we talk about the church militant and the church uh, victorious. And what do we mean by that? Well, this, those of us today with a pulse, living and breathing, we are the church militant. We're still in the game. We're still in the battle. We're fighting. We're fighting sin in our own lives. We're dealing with mistreatment. We're dealing with misunderstanding. We're possibly dealing with difficult family situations. That's what it means to be the church militant. Our fight is still raging. And the church victorious is those who have gone on ahead. They're enjoying that peace now. They fought their fight. It's victorious. There's nothing on the other side but lasting peace, lasting joy, lasting contentment with their Savior. And I'll say as one note here, for those of us who are younger, if you are ever tempted to get impatient or frustrated with older people when they start to slow down and maybe their judgment isn't quite as quick and they start making mistakes and they start backing combines into fuel tanks, (laughs) for example... Rather than being frustrated that these are old fogies, here's another way to look at this. These are the saints. These are the militant Christians at the top of the siege ladder, ready to jump in. They're at the vanguard of this battle. Okay? Respect them. Honor them. 
They're at the top of the siege ladder. Your turn is going to come. But they're jumping in to their reward. Respect your elders. Listen to grandma. She's got a lot of wise things to tell you. So again, how much are we willing to hurt for a lasting cause? How long are we willing to stay in the game for lasting victory? How many blessings are you enjoying today because of faithful Christians who went before you? We talked about English Bibles this morning. What a blessing. Are you thankful for people who had to face literal imprisonment and death for doing that for you? Are you honoring your elders? Are you willing to pay a similar price for those who are going to come after you? Who show up after you? And to make very immediate application, we've been praying for a building. And if and when the Lord is pleased to give us one, it's probably going to hurt us for a little bit to make sure we can pay for that building and get it ready and use it. It's going to hurt. There's been lots of talk about a classical Christian school. I would love it if we could assemble the right group of people and start a classical Christian school at Trinity. That's also going to take some resources and some time and some thinking. Are you willing to pay the price? Are you willing to suffer and have people oppose you in order to serve Christ? And by this, I'm not trying to romanticize or glorify suffering. We shouldn't go seek it out. And this has actually happened in the church when, when the, the suffering and the martyrdom get extremely complex. People have gone out of their way to be martyred. <laughs> kind of like a kamikaze pilot. And I am certainly not advocating for that. That has happened at certain times in history. But we need to be prepared for what Christ has warned us of. Sometimes things are in such a state that we must speak up. And this is one of the reasons that Christians find themselves in trouble. John Kelvin comments that a dog barks when his master is attacked. I would be a coward if I saw that God's truth is attacked and yet would remain silent. Are you a coward? Am I a coward? Let's think about it. Is your master being attacked? Does a dog have more sense to defend its master than you do? Sometimes opposition comes even if we're just minding our own business and staying silent. Just because people know you're a Christian and they're uncomfortable about it. There's a story going back many years of Billy Graham, Richard Nixon, Lee Trevino, and the winner of the Players' Championship in a foursome. And that's a star-studded foursome of golfers. And one of these players had a very rough time on the course. And he came back in a very grumpy mood and he went straight to the driving range and just started pounding balls out of pure anger. And someone went up to him and said, what's going on? He said, Billy Graham won't shut up about the gospel. And he kept hitting his golf balls and he was all upset. And this guy said, well, that doesn't make any sense. Billy Graham is one of the most gracious, kind, gentle souls on the planet. I'm sure he wasn't giving this guy a hard time, but he said, so Billy was really laying it on thick for you, was he? No, I just had a bad day. <laughs> okay, the presence of a Christian is a great place to place blame for a bad day. And if you're a Christian, sometimes you'll get blamed that way, not because you did anything wrong, but because your very existence hurts somebody else's conscience. Your very existence is a reminder of the God who made them. So sometimes this will happen even if you're minding your own business and you've done nothing wrong. Sometimes opposition comes by virtue of our priorities. Does anyone know the difference between preaching and meddling? It turns to meddling when you start making application that gets a little too close to home. So allow me to meddle. <laughs> our priorities say a lot about what's important. 
what's negotiable and what's non-negotiable. An obvious one in our time is missing worship for sports or for other things. How often do we do that? Oh, the hockey season's only 17 weeks. We've got 52 Sundays. Why can't we do that? Here's a question to ask. On those games that are scheduled for Sunday morning at 10, why couldn't a Christian parent say, well, why don't we do it Tuesday morning at 10? And why don't we? Well, what's the answer? Well, because of school. Just think about that for a minute. What's absolutely (laughs) non-negotiable is that the government needs to be training children Tuesday at 10 a.m. What's an optional add-on is the worship of the triune God. What does that, is that neutral? No, it's not neutral. Okay? And I'm not saying we can't ever be gone on holidays or gone or ever miss church. That's not what I'm saying. But what kind of a priority are we setting? What kind of a pattern are we setting? Why do we assume what's negotiable and what's not negotiable? Oh, but sports is good for my son's development. Yes, and so is worship. So is worship. Prioritizing the kingdom is far more important. Christ is not presenting a test here for who has the best saucer pass, who's the fastest skater, who throws the best knuckleball. That's not the test. The test is, are you willing to lay down your cross and follow me? Are you worthy of my name? Have you made this your priority? And sports is one example, but it's by no means exclusive. What about families that miss church because, well, it's a, it's a brunch morning. We, we did waffles instead. Okay, do waffles on Wednesday night. I, I don't care. What about poker nights with the guys when you've neglected family worship with your children? Okay. What about hashtag self-care instead of giving yourself for your family? And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with sports. Sports are good. Sports teach discipline. Sports teach a lot of good things. Brunch with your family is good. Hanging out with your friends is good. And alone time and taking care of yourself and getting adequate rest is good. I'm not, don't misunderstand me, please. But how are we prioritizing? Don't be surprised that if church is optional to your children, that they will grow up. We shouldn't be surprised when they find out that the pattern of their life is that worship is optional. That's what we've been teaching them in too many cases. So this is about prioritizing, thinking it through. And if we can't make things like family devotions or scripture reading or corporate worship a priority in in our lives, are we really taking up our cross and following Christ? When we're setting the calendar and the rhythms of our lives, personally or as families or even as a church, consider how those choices reflect how we see eternity. If Christ looked at your checkbook and at your schedule and your calendar, would he say you're worthy of him? Would he say that of me? I sure doubt it sometimes. But you know what? He is looking at my calendar. He is looking at my checkbook. Now what? Let's think about these things. He goes on in verse 40 through 42. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. And We've seen how difficulty and conflict is set up when unbelief is presented with Christ and his claims. And this happens all through the Bible. Even among brothers, Cain and Abel, Jacob and Esau. Imagine, we've got some pregnant and recently pregnant women here. Imagine a civil war happening in your womb. What's that feel like? 
Okay? Maybe some of you thought that there was a civil war and there was only one in there. But imagine two that are literally at war with each other. This is nothing new. That there's conflict being presented between light and darkness. And last week when we looked at Pentecost, we saw how the Spirit brings people together from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Sin has resulted in chaos and confusion, but by the Spirit, God is turning the curse back and putting things back together. And we need to remember that true, lasting unity is created when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Christ is Lord. And until that task is completed, we can continue to expect a clash of worldviews, of ways of thinking, ways of living. And pagan systems of thought may have their counterfeit forms of peace. We've all seen the coexist bumper sticker, right? Pluralism, uh, trying to make the claim that really at bottom all religions are the same. I was in a discussion with a more distant relative of mine. None of you know him, so don't try to figure it out. Uh, and he was getting quite interested in native spirituality. And he told me what, what, he, what really impressed him was that there was nothing yet he had discovered in native spirituality that contradicts at all anything that he learned from Christianity. Now, okay, that's interesting. And he asked if I thought that was the case. And I said, well, aside from what we say about God, man, sin, salvation, heaven, hell, evil, and good. Yeah, I think aside from those things, we do basically agree. (laughs) Unfortunately, those tend to be rather large items. There is no syncretism possible. Coexist, yes, peacefully, respecting each other. But in terms of trying to mesh worldviews that don't fit together, it will not happen. It can't happen. And these verses show us how inseparably Christ sees himself from his saints. These verses are the conclusion of 23 verses that have discussed persecution, difficulty, and conflict. And so by now, the reader should understand that being a Christian can be lonely. It can be painful. You're going to feel isolated. You're going to feel misunderstood very often. And here Christ shows his tender compassion for those who get mistreated and misunderstood. He is so closely in union with his people that if we receive one another in a hospi- on hospitality, Christ says we're actually receiving him. That's how close the connection is. We are also in such close union with one another that as believers, our gifts become interchangeable with one another. So if you receive a prophet or a righteous person into your home, you are receiving Christ himself. And if you're receiving Christ, you are going to share the benefits and the gifts that he gives to those people. You receive a righteous man's reward simply for receiving and showing kindness and hospitality to the righteous man. And Christ's compassion, as always, isn't just for the big name people. It's not just letting Billy Graham stay at your house for a night. It includes the little ones, the people that no one's ever heard of, the people who get forgotten, the people who aren't cool, beautiful young things, the little ones. And verse 42 isn't so much about charity in general as it is about charity inside the household of God. The little one, if you look closely in verse 42, the little one is a disciple. He's a Christian. And if we receive each other as Christians with as little as a cup of water, sometimes that's all it takes to show kindness, a cup of water, you will be rewarded by Christ. Think of this in a playground. Think if you're the parent of the kid who's getting picked on and bullied all the time. How thankful would you be if a bigger, stronger kid steps up and defends your kid. That's how Christ sees it when we show hospitality to each other. The mistreated, the uncool, the rejected, you know, the parent with wayward children, the child with parents who have thrown them out for 
thinking the wrong thoughts. That's what Christ wants from us, from each other, is hospitality. There's been lots of references to hospitality and to caring for each other in this passage. And to, again, make application here. Because we're new, and because many of us have been getting to know one another, I do believe Trinity Fellowship has been a very hospitable group. We've seen lots, how people have opened up their homes for youth to happen, to make Bible studies happen, to host hymn sings, to host baby showers, to help new mums, other things. And people have been connecting for meals and coffee, and I say, this is wonderful, keep it up. And we need to do this. It can be lonely and discouraging to be committed to Christ when those around us don't see how important this is. They don't see the importance of it. And so being in fellowship with one another is one of the ways that Christ shows his kindness and his care for his people. He does it through other people. And so even our name, Trinity Fellowship, can serve as an ongoing reminder of many things. But for today's purposes, let's remember that the triune God of Scripture is at the center of all that we want to do, think, or be. Trinity Fellowship. That's at the center, is the triune God. All of this is for his glory. We want all of it to be according to his instructions, and we need to remember that all gifts flow down from the triune God. And one of these gifts is fellowship. And so just like there's love and fellowship between the three persons of the Trinity, this love also overflows down and puts us in fellowship with one another. And so... When you are here for corporate worship, you're not only strengthening yourself, but you're strengthening everyone else who's here, who sees you here and is encouraged by your presence and makes it easier for them to come as well. There's a, 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 just a spillover of blessings all around when we're in fellowship with each other. Yes, on Sunday morning, but also throughout the week. Being together builds community. Being together builds the kind of molecular strength that keeps us from falling away, from growing cold. And so that's where I want to leave this today. Think about what it means to Christ when we show hospitality to his saints. And let's consider how we can do that in the weeks and days ahead. Let's close in prayer. Father God, I want to thank you for these words. I want to thank you that even though we are so often faced with the discomfort uh, that you tell us that loneliness and persecution and difficulty and conflict is so much a part of the Christian life. Lord, I pray that we would handle those things with honor, with a sense of resolve. Not that we want a fight, but that we want to be faithful to you. And we will leave the consequences in your hands. Lord, I pray that we would face these things graciously. That we would not look for trouble, that we would not provoke trouble, uh, but that we would handle it with honor and with dignity and with courage if and when it comes. Lord, I want to pray for each one here this morning. Lord, you know what each one is faced with. You know the, the pressure points, the points of pain, the points of loneliness for each one here. Lord, and I pray that by your spirit, you would comfort us and that you would use each other here this morning to comfort each other as well. I pray that we would be known uh, for the way we love each other well, the way we connect well. Lord, thank you for what you have been doing and we pray that you would only continue to increase it as we grow closer to you and closer to one another. pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. And amen. So this morning, we are uh, having communion, and for those who may be visiting, we practice a form of open communion here, which means this is not just for members of Trinity Fellowship, uh, but everyone who has been baptized into uh, an evangelical church and who is not currently under church discipline uh, is welcome to partake of communion with us.
And it's fitting that we're celebrating the Lord's Supper on a Sunday where we consider the difficulty and the grind that is the Christian life, as well as the importance of fellowship with one another. Christ himself paves the way of a life of sorrow and loneliness, and the bread and the wine are fitting symbols of this. Just as Christ was crushed to give us new life, so wheat and grape are crushed in order to strengthen the new life in us. On the other side of the threshing floor is new life and blessing. We get a taste of this when we consider what bread and wine are communicating to us, but we equally get a taste of this when we do it together. We are not a group of 100 individuals just happening to do this at the same time and at the same place. We are one body doing this together. Many parts all being fed at once. And so as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, look around you and see how God has been kind to give you all these people for your encouragement and for your edification. And not only that, but you have also been given to them. And we're doing this as one body, serving one Lord. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask the elders to come up and then we'll have a time of reflection and prayer. have a time of silent prayer as we reflect and then I'll close. Lord, as we prepare for you to feed us, Lord, I pray that we would set aside uh, distractions that you would set aside any conflict that is not yet resolved. I pray that as far as it be with each one here, uh, that we would live at peace with each other, live at peace with those around us. Uh, And so, Lord, I pray that you would clear our conscience. I pray that you would convict us of sin, that we can clean it up. 
And at the same time that that would not turn into a loss of assurance or panic or dread or morbid introspection. Rather, Lord, that we would just be renewed by the amazement and the recognition that your grace is bigger than all our sins. And so, Lord, I pray that you would forgive us. I pray that we would be quick to seek forgiveness where we need to. Help us as we take this. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And you can take the bread. Then we'll serve the wine. And a reminder for those who prefer, we have uh, grape juice on the inside and wine on the outer ring.
In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And you can take the cup. Please stand as we sing.
A reminder again for those who are in baptism classes, we're going to set up here again right after church, and uh, today is our last baptism class. So receive the charge with believing hearts. Sin, no, I'm not putting my hands up yet. Sin and rebellion have thrown this world into a great darkness and confusion. The world is dark and confused because it is populated by people who have chosen darkness and confusion. When our first parents kicked at the rule of God, everyone in this room was there with them. There is only one way back, and that is through the Lord Jesus Christ. He has shone his light into the world, and while our natural reaction to him is violent, we know that the light must overcome the darkness. When we live our lives to the glory of God, we are polluting the shadows. And these shadows don't go away happily, and this is why we are promised conflict when we shine the light of Christ. The difficulty of the task may mean losing family and friends, but gaining Christ is worth that and so much more. This world has been bought with his blood. Are we willing to suffer a little while as we enter his rest? Are you willing to lay your own glory down, to pick up a cross and carry it across the finish line? Will Christ find you worthy of him? If he left us to do this on our own, it would still be worth it, but he is so much kinder than that. He has sent us each other to push and encourage one another, to help carry the cross for each other when it gets too heavy. Christian, you have already lost your life, so don't be discouraged. In losing your life, you found Christ. You have found a reward that far surpasses whatever you have lost. And so this week, look for and create opportunities to encourage, to show hospitality, and to help a struggling brother or sister carry their cross a little closer to the finish line. The benediction comes from 2 Thessalonians 2, 16 and 17. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself, our God and Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word and go in peace.